0: wheelchair and uh, when he was about two years old his parents put him in front of a piano and they began to help him uh, by playing notes by the time he was four he could play requests Uh, his gift turned out to be among the intelligent things that he was able to do but one of his gifts turned out to be this ability to play musical instruments And uh, he graduated from high school and uh, participated in the band there and went on to uh, the uh, band down in uh, Georgia. It's the same one, uh, I can't remember the name of it, the same one that Allison's on. Uh, What's the band's name, though? Can't remember. Anyway, uh, I suppose I just... And the thing thing that moved me is that... uh, this guy, with, without eyes, without out able to move his arms and his legs, wanted to be in the marching band, or actually was invited to be in the marching band, because he was an outstanding trumpet player. And uh, they said, well, what am I going to do? I can't really be in that. And they sat down and they dialogued with the band director who wanted him in the band and, and everything else. And his father uh, and mother decided that, uh, because it was close to where they lived, that the father would put his son in a wheelchair, dressed in the same uniform, and march this son through every one of the routines. And this father <clears throat> faithfully pushes his son through any every one of the routines that the band goes and does, while his son plays the trumpet. And on an interview, they said, well, what's that like? And he said, well, it's really pretty good. And he said, every once in a while, I feel my father have to pick up the pace. He must have missed a cue here and there, but a, I can't see it, but that's the only way that I can tell. And uh, <clears throat> they had him playing piano, and, and he's playing a clair-de-lune, one of the ones, if you've ever played piano, it seems like it's one of the ones you've got to learn, but just this beautiful, beautiful piano player and trumpet and everything else. <laughs> and then they, they asked him uh, what it was like and, and, uh, and you know how he really felt about it, and he said, uh, so I'm blind and things don't work, so what? And then he said, my God has given me some unbelievable gifts. And I thank him every day for what he has made me and given to me. And I thought, right, you kind of go, attitude of gratitude. I think you all walked in here on your own steam. I notice as I get older, I don't walk in as fast. And, you know, they tweak a little bit more when you move them around and stuff. But, you know... Attitude of gratitude. Kid not even having eyes. Unable to straighten his arms. Just celebrating life. And as he was interviewed and actually was receiving a reward for some of the things he had done. It's the very first thing in the speech that they, they showed was, I am so thankful to my God for what he has done for me. There is no fear in his testimony. There is no backing down in his heart. He steps right into it and he stands with this unbelievable boldness with all of the things and the handicaps that you might not even want to look at him because he's got sunken eyes and and they had to put glass eyes in just to give him some facial form and shape. And I go, and this kid, without a doubt, stands up with a boldness that is meaning to communicate, although he doesn't mean to do it, obviously, is meaning to communicate, I really am thankful to my God and Creator for who I am and what He has done for me. Always giving thanks to our God and Father. I uh, Looking at uh, (coughs) this phrase, uh, Christians are meant to be people who speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the God and Father for everything. Doggone you, Charles. If you don't understand that verse, you understand it now. If you ever get fortunate enough to see that video and ever meet a guy like that face-to-face, or, uh, you know, a guy like Pam, or a a girl like Pam Stenzel, who, came to our school a few years ago and gave this unbelievable on-fire testimony about God in her life and about uh, how you really need to be remained sexually pure and, and on and on and on and just things about her own marriage and relationship. And then she got to that part of the talk where she began to say, I know a young lady who doesn't even know who her father is because she is the product of a rape. And she is not sure who her mother is because she's never met her. But one day she looks forward to someday meeting her if not here on earth, at least maybe in heaven. And she goes on to this story and saying, this girl does not even know what nationality she is. She has no idea of her blood kin. And then she looked at the kids at school and she said, I am that girl. And I thank God every day that my mother did not kill me. And I thank God every day that he has made me a child of his. And I thank God every day for the privilege of talking to you kids and other kids just like you. You know, and all of a sudden, that that whole sense of what does it mean to be a Christian and what does it mean to be thankful and, and, and how do you get to that point where you get beyond the the circumstance where you get beyond the the moment where you get beyond and and you actually are being that person not because you have to be but because that's who you really are. It is not like I have to say let's be thankful or you know I pull you up and say let's say thanks for this but it's because it's what you really and truly feel. As I looked and I studied uh you know, uh, to look back and study the things of the, the pilgrims. Uh, unbelievable testimonies. I, I, I like to always find something new. So Some of the stuff, you know, obviously it's the pilgrims, right? Uh, maybe you remember it's 1622 and things like that. But uh, there is this uh, fascinating stuff I began to discover about them. And uh, this group of people uh, had been trying to be a part of the Reformation. you got to understand... About 350 uh, years after Jesus died, they kind of yanked the Bible away from the common people and, and Latin became uh, the language that they wrote it in or Greek and fewer and fewer people spoke that language and things began to change and all kinds of stuff happened. And so for a long time until the Reformation, the Bible was kind of a, a somewhat of a closed book and it took guys like Hus and Tyndale and others to finally begin to translate it into the language of the common people again. Unfortunately, those two guys uh, paid for it with uh, being burned at the stake. But eventually, the the Bible was translated (coughs) by Luther into German and by others into English, and people began to read it, and these small groups began to form, of which the pilgrims was one. They actually uh, accepted the name of pilgrims and sojourners, or pilgrims sojourning through the world, you know, strangers and pilgrims traveling through this world. They, they absorbed that name because they saw themselves, and they became known as separatists because they believed the church had become so corrupted that there was no reason to stay in it, so they had to separate from it. And so it was a little bit of a derogatory name, but they called themselves the pilgrims. Those who didn't like them called themselves the separatists. And there was another group that started about this time called the Puritans, and the Puritans were trying to stay in the church and... Purify it, okay? And so these two groups were working. They had been persecuted so severely that uh, eventually they had to escape. There's records that say as many as thirty thousand people had their ears cut off and their tongues slit for some of the beliefs that they professed related to these Puritans and these uh, the things and the Puritans and the Pilgrims. And uh, so whether those are accurate or not, that's the numbers that uh, have been thrown around. Uh, The pilgrims eventually moved to Holland, but they found that, and they they had a degree of religious freedom over there. That's a little bit where they got some of those different kind of clothes that we kind of picture them in, right, with the big buckles and the hats and stuff. Uh, But they wanted their children to be raised English because basically they were English and English-speaking people, and they were learning a different language. So they had this opportunity to travel to the New World. They had no idea what it meant. They had a little bit of an understanding of it but they knew it went freedom. And they wanted to go, and it's stated, they wanted to go and evangelize the new world. They wanted to go and claim this new world for Jesus Christ, and they set out in two ships. But the sailors on one of the ships, I can't think of the name, began to drill holes in the bottom of the boat because they didn't want to go to the new world. It's a frightening long trip and everything else. So they began to drill holes. The boat began to take on so much water that the two ships had to go back, and they ended up with just the one, the Mayflower, that you guys and we are much more familiar with, only they piled 102 people into this relatively small boat. Uh, by our standards, we would not even want to go uh, out in it very much in terms of understanding the size, if you've ever seen the, the copies of some of the Mayflowers and things like that that are around. And they sailed two months to cross the ocean. Some of the storms they went through lasted as long as a week. The people got in such situations, and so much of the food was ruined and wet and everything down below, they got in such situations that as it went on board, some of them were actually washed overboard. The ship could not turn around. If you know anything about sailing and boats and everything else and crossing the ocean at this time of year and everything else, they could not turn that boat around in time to rescue that person, nor would they have ever bothered to go back during a storm. You're over, you're gone. But those people, I think there were at least two, that were washed overboard, grabbed the ropes. They have what they call trailing ropes that they would run over the sides of the boats. They grabbed the ropes, and they themselves literally had to pull themselves back to the side of the boat until people realized they were on the rope and then they could lift them up back on the boat. They started off with 102 people. 102 people arrived on Plymouth Rock. They got all of their stores there. They didn't land where they wanted to land. The situation was extremely difficult and all the other things that happened there. It was called Virginia at the time. The king claimed it. It wasn't his, of course, but the king claimed it. Virginia started at the Atlantic Ocean and it ended at the Pacific Ocean. It wasn't Virginia like you and I think of it. So they they say that we landed in the northern northern portion of Virginia. And that was where they landed, in the northeast portion of Virginia, Loosely called what we now know as probably the United States, pretty much. But that was it. They were landed there. And they had very little food. And winter set in. They found a deserted Indian village. And in that Indian village, they found corn. And stores of some corn that had been left there. The pilgrims were so motivated by the power of God that they knew that was not their corn. And so they paid for the corn that they took from that deserted Indian village. And they used that deserted, part of the time used that deserted Indian village, and that was some of the food that got them through that first winter. In the first year, 50% of the people died. But they were so thankful by the end of that year for the harvest that they declared a three-day festival, a three-day celebration of thanksgiving to God. And it says that they invited over 90 Indians to the feast. The pilgrims were so committed, even though the king told them they could have this land, they didn't take the land. They asked the Indians, may we buy this land from you?" And they purchased at the price the Indians declared those sections of land that they lived in. The relationship with the pilgrims and the Indians was one of mutual Unbelievable respect. There wasn't any fear. There wasn't any of this, you know, we're going to attack you and you're going to attack us. Or they never would have invited 90 Indians to come to the meal. They hunted. I'm thinking of Jeff right now. Right during Thanksgiving. There's a precedent for it. So now you can explain to Kim why you're going out. <coughs> and they had an abundance of, of what they brought back in. This is not the good part yet. I haven't got to the good part. I hope you've all heard this part, the beast parts before. The second year, the second year, the harvest was horrid. The weather was horrid. It was rainy. Many of the crops had been ruined. There was nothing good from the outside that they could see. And it's recorded that they declared a day of fasting, prayer, and humiliation. And the Indians watched. This is the part that struck me. And the Indians watched. And as these pilgrims fasted and prayed and demonstrated a humility and a brokenness before this God they worshipped, the Indians And at the end of that time, what they needed happened. And they were able to bring a crop in. And the Indians were so moved by watching these people's lives that they opened the door of communication and witness for those pilgrims, for those Indians. You see, it isn't in what you have. It's who and what you are. You see, the miracle of the pilgrims is they were thankful people. They did not have to try and work themselves up to it. They did not have to hear something. They did not have to be moved by something. This is what they were. This is who they lived out. And when things did not go well, they knew exactly who they had to go back to. They had a relationship with God that was alive. And the witness of their actions and their attitudes and their courage in good times as, more importantly, even in evil times, became the testimony and the witness of the kind of people and the kind of heritage that we have when we start talking about Thanksgiving. And when you and I begin to understand that, we begin to understand some of the other implications. I was struck by the information That uh, was said by Abraham. uh, Excuse me, not Abraham Lincoln. George Washington. I just want to read just a few things here uh, that comes from this. It was uh, didn't take place till 1789, but it goes. I therefore now do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being, who is the beneficent author. Of all beneficent, beneficent excuse me, uh, author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto Him our sincere and humble thanks for His kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty that we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly for the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have, we ha- and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great and various favors that He has been pleased to confer upon us, and also we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the Great Lord and Ruler of the Nations, and beseech Him to pardon our nation and other transgressions, our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all people by constantly being a government of wise and just and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness to us, and to bless them with good governments, peace, concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and the increase of science among them and us and generally grant to all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows best. Wow, our roots, huh? That was enough to wake me up a little bit. Then I realized as I read some more that uh, it was 75 years that the presidents for 75 years continued to redate that. Not till Lincoln's time when he finally said we need to make it permanent and then finally created our more permanent Thanksgiving Day. Are we a thankful nation now? Let me change it. Are we thankful Christians? You got enough? You need more. If you were to lose your eyes and the ability to move your arms and your legs, would you shut down and quit, or would you walk the same degree of thankfulness? That young man in that video I saw. On are we thankful people? Is the challenge. We may look at the world and the nation, and and maybe we don't see thankfulness in them. But I don't think that's where I want to look. I want to look at me. I want to look at my own life, my own heart, my own actions, because that's where you know, that's where I look at this young man, and I'm just convicted by what I see. I'm convicted by the lack of what I need to be and always be, and be becoming. And I'm going, if I have to work myself up to it, then I know God's not quite done with me. There's more that I have to be there, because I'm going, in every circumstance, it says in Scripture, in every situation... Give thanks. And in order for me to be in every situation to give thanks, I have to be in such intimacy with Christ that I smile and I go, you got something good coming, don't you? You got something good coming, and I know it looks really bad right now. You understand? You remember that old joke or that old story of the the twin boys? One was born a pessimist, the other born an optimist. And the little boy who was born a pessimist a doctor finally says, "Well, let's fill him. We'll give him a room filled with toys." And uh, he was, they, they just filled this room with toys, and they put the pessimist in there. And, oh, just toy, I just throw him around. Was not happy with any of the toys. And he said, "Well, let's give the optimist a room filled with manure." They filled the room up with manure, and they looked in through the little glass window, and there's this kid racing through the manure, giggling and laughing. You can't fool me. Where there's manure, there's a pony. I go, what is it going to take for us to be that? Right? To actually get to that point. Because you say, oh my God, you can't be loving me because it's not turning out the way I thought. This isn't the way I think it should go. And God smiles and says, child, who are you trusting? Your eyes are mine. And you begin to go, "Ah." you understand? There's this process God has us in. How intimate do I become with God until I finally begin to go, I know what my God is doing. I don't become an optimist because it's a mechanical or a a twist of my brain or an attitude I was born with or whatever you may call it. I become an optimist because I trust Scripture. In everything, God works together for good. I become convinced that in all things, God is working in my life. I become convinced that God will never leave me nor forsake me. I become convinced that He is almighty. I become convinced that He who created me is more than able to carry me through every situation I'm in. Now, there's a good part and a bad part of being old. Being old, sometimes I was teaching the kids about my hall of shame. I said, I got such a long hall, I can't get to the end of it anymore. All the bad stuff I've done in my life, you know, and I just get reminded of that. But I go... The neat thing about it also is you've got these memories God forgave me from that one. And I've used that one 5 or 500 times to bless people because I remember what a brat I was when I was 6 and 7 and 8 and <laughs> mom nine nah, keep going right I right, know 10 11 12 13, all right you got it. and I go and God was able to rescue me. I begin to understand how far away and how cold and how difficult how angry I was, how hurt I was, how destroyed I was, how afraid I was. I look down these memories of things where I wasn't what I was supposed to be, and I start to see a victory printed across that, saved by the blood, covered by the love of Jesus, rescued. And I go down my hall of shame, and at the same time I look at the things I failed in, I see that stamp of God's mercy and God's grace, and I can't do anything but get to the end of the hall and do two things. Be unbelievably humble because God saved a wretch like me. And unbelievably thankful and celebrative because he did not quit. If he has got me through that and that and that and that as I walk down the hall, he can get me through this. See, that's the miracle of having lived a little longer. Do you think, you know, a guy like Peter got smarter? After he denied Christ, I think he did. I think he got really smart. I think he began to go, wow, was that a silly thing to do. I think he got smarter after he began to sink in the water. I don't think he went back and said, wow, I was really brave. But I think he learned, I got to learn to trust God because he won't let go of me. I think he learned that Satan himself can get into his own mouth when Jesus had to turn to Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. But I think when you got all done, by the time God was done with him, he got to walk down and he saw the hand of God touching the life and the mercy. Do you know why you're here today? Because the hand of God has called you here. Because the mercy of God refuses to quit on you. Because God has put a stamp of his approval and said, this person belongs to me. I have gone to the cross for you. I have paid the ultimate price and I will continue to do what it takes to hold on to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want you. I want you to remember what I've rescued you from, not so you walk around hanging your head, but so you walk around with that humble, celebrative joy that says, I can't tell you how this is going to turn out. I only know who's in control. I can cry. I can hurt. I can fall apart. And as I'm crying and hurting and fall apart, I keep going back, and I remember, God, you've got me through every one, and if this is going to be the last one, then I will close my eyes and wake up and look at you, the very next person. But I will not. I will not let go of the joy and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love that you've demonstrated to me. When you walk into this thanksgiving, think of the ones he's brought you through. When you walk into this thanksgiving, understand the intimacy and the relationship that God has had with you and that he desires to have with you even more understand what he's carried you through, even as you stare down the, you know, that kind of open-ended, bottomless hole of how will we get out from under this situation, or how will we be, we be rescued from that situation? And I whisper to you, as God has gotten people out of those impossible situations, he has not left you nor forsaken you. He has carried you this far, and he didn't bring you this far just to leave you down. He's brought you this far because He wants you to be with Him. He wants you to experience life. He wants you to be a part of the victory. Those pilgrims were as much a testimony in their thanksgiving and relationship and the victories that they experienced, but they were more of a witness and a testimony of thanksgiving in the courage they had to be obedient to ask God to rescue them and practice the humility and the brokenness that was that testimony. If people look at you, would they say, I want your life? That's what the Indians said to the pilgrims. I pray, as I look at my life and your life, and we begin to examine, just let God begin to cleanse and deal with stuff, people to look at you, not want what you have. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. You understand the difference? You can always want what somebody has, that bigger TV or the nicer car or the house. That's not what I'm asking. Don't misunderstand that. But I want to be you. I want to celebrate life like you celebrate life. I want to come to work with a smile like you come to work with a smile. I want to be happy even in the middle of the most miserable time like you seem to. I want to be able to praise God in every situation like I see you doing in your life. If they don't see that in us, we got a ways to go to get back to the roots of our nation. So as we enter this Thanksgiving, as we walk down this path, God's promise is the hope that you and I have. Those victory after victory after victory reminds me, oh God, You've just hung on to me so faithfully. I will walk into this moment, into my next day of work, into my next surgery, into my next difficulty. I will walk with my head and my eyes resting fully on you, Jesus. Pray with me. Father, uh, what a gift you have given us in this nation. What faithful men and women, and what history, and what details, and what life examples. What things are recorded if we take the time to read them and find what they've written about their love and their faith? In the middle of the loss and the death of 50% of them, those congregations stood up and praised your name anyway. In the middle of losing even more people the next year, they still bowed their head and named you as God and Lord of their life. Recreate in us, Lord, that spirit of of confidence, obedience, joy, uh, a desire, Lord, to burn like they burned with the fire of love for you that they had. Help us to see and to love and to be faithful witnesses, no matter what the circumstances are around us, no matter what the opportunities are around us. Give us the courage to walk as the brothers and sisters have walked before and make us pilgrims and sojourners in this land, Lord so that we walk through it with great dignity, bringing dignity and love and nurture to others, bringing joy and the presence of your Spirit in every situation. Make us those kinds of people again and refresh us to walk that walk. I thank you, God, for our nation. I thank you, God, for our government. I thank you, God, for the things you continue to bless us with. I thank you, God, for the worst times of my life. I thank you, God, for the best times of my life. I thank you, God, for where my children are. I thank you for where they have yet to be. I thank you, Lord, for the brothers and sisters I get to celebrate and worship with. I thank you for the struggles that they're going through because you will not quit on them. I thank you, Lord, that when it looks hopeless to me and to everyone else around, you have not yet begun to carry on what you need to do. I thank you, Lord, that in life there is victory. I thank you, Lord, that in death there is victory. And in all things I will praise you, Lord, and I pray that together we would become a congregation of grateful people finding and discovering new reasons to be grateful to you every day. Create that grateful spirit in us, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We join together in uh, the closing prayer.